Wow, there was a lot of uh, stuff going on in rock and roll history this week, wasn't there? Must have been the the, 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 the fall or the autumn or something. Yeah, it was a packed... Um, it was hard to choose, eh, Tony? It was really hard. I felt like we had enough for about four episodes if we... Uh, <laughs> If we wanted, it was not so much going on. So we had to leave out some really good ones. I guess we'll save those for next year, won't we? Well, and the, and the thing is, next year we'll be probably doing it in person again. I I just loved being with you last week and doing it in person live. So, yeah. Well, me too. But I got to say, you know, that new microphone you're using sounds really good. So uh, oh, thanks to you. Thanks to you. Oh, no, no, no problem. But uh you ready for a road trip? This is a real mixed bag we've got today, so we probably should get started. I'm always ready. Let's go. Okay, here we go. I'll fire it up. Maps? Check. Snacks? Double check. Tunes? Check. I'm Tony Stewart. I'm Aaron Badgley. And we are cruising the rock and roll highway in our way back music machine. Are you ready, my friend? I sure am. I have the feeling this is going to be the start of a great adventure. Kind of a magical mystery tour. Somehow I knew you were going to say that. Now for the first stop on the road trip, we have to go uh, back to September 14th, 1955. Now last week you were mentioning about... Dolly Parton doing the nail clicking for her <laughs> typing in nine to five. So have you grown your nails for the uh, push button sound um, effect or? Well, I grew them and then I bit them off because I had a bad meeting this week. No, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'm ready, I'm ready to plug in the date. How about that? Yeah, sure. Give us the old sound effect and I'll cue up the time machine. <laughs> sound effect. It's a, it's a computer. Okay. There we go. those old commercials tony i don't know where you find them but i love them they're great yeah me too that, that must have been a, a great time you know the uh they weren't uh always into presenting facts if you uh if you know what i mean well they're they're distorted facts or um, <laughs> alternative facts maybe is that not, isn't that different what reality facts <laughs> <laughs> yeah because i never knew that uh, smoking was good for you you know I keep telling you, there's that one movie, I wish I could find the title, where the doctor is talking to a woman who's like eight months pregnant, and he's smoking and she's smoking. <laughs> <laughs> well, oh, here my. we are, and uh, we're in New Orleans, and it's September 14th, 1955, and uh, this is an interesting one, because Little Richard, uh, such an important figure in early rock history, and... On September 14th, he entered a New Orleans recording studio and he began two days of recording, but things were not going all that well. But during a break, he was with his producer, a guy named Bumps Blackwell, and they went to the Dew Drop-In for lunch. Richard uh, went over to the piano and he started playing the piano in the bar like crazy and he was uh, singing a loud and they say lewd version of a song called Tutti Fruity. And uh, 
with only 15 minutes in the session, they ran back and he recorded the song and he coined that famous phrase, right? A wop, bop, a wop, bam, boom. And, and history was made, as they say. But uh, can you imagine uh, rock history without Tutti Frutti? Well, and, and, and he had been making records since 51 and he didn't have any hits. He was, um, so it doesn't surprise me that things weren't going well in the studio. He just wasn't finding his sound yet. So it took him a few years, but he found his sound all right. Oh, did he ever? And you know, he was, uh, I always like talking about Sister Rosetta Tharp, right? But Sister Rosetta Tharp was kind of the one who prompted him into becoming a singer in the first place, right? She had him open for her. I didn't realize he was this young, but she had him open for her. She'd heard him singing and she had him open for her when he was 14 years old. Isn't that unbelievable? Wow. Wow. Cool. Yeah. Talk about a vote of confidence, eh? But uh, yeah, it took him a little while to find his voice and then he just exploded. I mean, the string of hits he had in that three-year period, right? About 55 to 58. I mean, what did he have? About 15 songs, right? That hit the charts. It was pretty nuts. On the specialty label, which which is, you know, and, and I mean, when you talked earlier, but he influenced the Beatles. I mean, McCartney has often said, and Little Richard often said that McCartney got that famous Beatle whoo from Little Richard. And McCartney never denied it. He's like, yeah. That's, well, that's know, right. Little Richard. Because they were on yeah. tour together, right? And he used to always uh, coach McCartney through that stuff. And I love that famous uh, photograph of the four lads sitting with Little Richard because they look I, so I young. That's one of my favorite photos. That's a great. And, and one of your favorites played organ for him uh, from 62 on, Billy Preston. Oh, yeah. I didn't realize that, that Billy Preston had played with Little Richard. But isn't that interesting? And that's where the Beatles met Billy Preston for the first time. Oh, that's so cool, isn't it? What a, what a great connection. So <laughs> I know. You know, the two, Little Richard's, um, he was kind of, you know, really the first big crossover artist, wasn't he? I mean, he started getting uh, black kids and white kids together uh, listening to his shows. And uh, he's always been inextricably linked, unfortunately, with, with Pat Boone. And I think... Um, <sighs> It's just one of those symbiotic relationships that, you know, he like people like Dick Clark were playing the Pat Boone sanitized versions of Little Richard tunes, but they would never have been heard if it wasn't for Pat Boone singing that stuff. Right. And Pat Boone charted higher than Little Richard's version. I mean, you've heard Pat Boone's version of this, right? Oh, my gosh. Yes. I, I, I wish I hadn't. But it's just so sanitized. It's awful. You know. With his, and I'll, I'll have this vision in my head of him in that suit, swinging his arm, snapping his fingers, going a wop up a loop up. Oh yeah, it's, um, you know. But there, isn't there the famous story that uh, he was little Richard? Richard Penniman was working as a dishwasher, and he heard the Pat Boone version of one of his songs on, on the radio, and he thought, man, no, no way, I gotta, you know, uh, get out there again and. Uh, it is really sad, right? You said, uh, I, I'm looking at your notes, and Richard peaked at 21, and, and Pat Boone hit number 12, which is a shame, eh? Uh, you know, it's, it's, and it, forced, it foretold the very famous Rush album, 2112. No, just kidding. Just kidding. But, um, yeah, you know, I don't, I, 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 I uh, Elvis did a good version of uh, Tutti Frutti on his first album. The Beatles recorded it, and he used to perform it live in Hamburg, Germany. I mean, it's, a, it's one of those pinnacle songs and unfortunately you know pat boone had the hit and um and and by the way you're fine you're you're italian background right yes i did not know that tutti frutti was italian for 
It's all fruits. It means all it's fruits. All fr- <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that. That's hilarious. Now, McCartney also was inspired to become a singer, wasn't he, after he saw... What was the movie that uh, Little Richard was in? And McCartney um, saw it at the theater when he was about 15 or something? And Yeah, that's with Jane Mansfield. Uh, yeah. Uh, girl Can't Help It. The Girl Can't Help It. But yeah, that was a big moment in Paul McCartney's upbringing as well. And, uh, you know, uh, the importance of Little Richard just can't be overstated. I mean, I think as important as Elvis. Um, well, I... I, but you, you mentioned Paul McCartney, and what's interesting is that in our list of all the stuff that happened, you mentioned the recording of the song Birthday. And when the Beatles were recording Birthday, they stopped recording at night because they were showing Girl Can't Help It on BBC. Oh, wow. So they all went back to McCartney's house, watched the This is 68. They go back to McCartney's house, watch the movie. They go back and they record Birthday. So... Oh, there you go. That's really cool. But uh, yeah, this was the moment right here on September 14th, 1955, you know, and that changed his career forever. And uh, he was in and out of the music business, of course, over the years. But, uh, you know, I have to say I'm not a big Dick Clark fan, uh, but I it was nice to see later on. I think it was, you know, 64, maybe that uh, Dick Clark had Little Richard on uh, American Bandstand and kind of. You could tell he acknowledged that he dropped the ball a bit in not having him on earlier, didn't he? Yeah. I think, you know, Dick Clark's not my favorite. I think we've been down this road before. Uh, Good friend of Pat Boone's. Um, But, uh, you know, I agree. Did you know what I did? There's an interview with Little Richard, and, you know, he said one of the most embarrassing things ever was when Disney took the song Tutti Frutti and they did. They animated Donald Duck singing to Daisy because in the song it says "Got a girl named Daisy," right? And Little Richard said that was the most humiliating moment of my life. <laughs> I thought, "Wow, Donald! I'd love to see Donald Duck sing one of my songs." Well, yeah, I suppose, eh? But I guess it just back then too. It would have been well. It would have been like Elvis Presley having to sing to that dog on the Steve Allen show, right? Right. I think right, Elvis, right. that was one of his all-time career lowlights. You know, he's just mortified. And you could tell he just could not wait to get off that stage. <laughs> but uh, Richard's believe. antics, I mean, his dress, uh, you know, not only did he break that color barrier, but he also uh, didn't really hide the fact about his sexuality. He, You know, it was he he didn't go out of his way to avoid it. Let's put it that way. Well, you know, this is the thing, right? We th- we think we're so very advanced in nineteen in, in, in twenty twenty one and twenty twenty two, twenty twenty. But this is a guy in nineteen fifty five that was basically like him and Elvis and Jerry Lee. These people were really pushing the line. I mean, Elvis with his 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 form of dance, you know, Elvis the pelvis, Jerry Lee with just waking up in the morning was enough for Jerry Lee. But, um, you know, there's little Richard, and he was he was breaking a lot of boundaries, and, and accepted, too, by the way. Well, that's exactly. And, uh, yeah, a lot of white kids listening to uh, little Richard, and he, you know, helped also segregate concert audiences, which, again, is a huge thing. Yeah. I agree with you. I think he's he's up there with Elvis in terms of importance of the history of rock and roll. Well, and that's where he gets that he, you know, we always call Elvis the king of rock and roll, right? But they always refer to little Richard as the architect of rock and roll. And I think, uh, I think he liked that title. Yeah, well, that's a good title. It's a nice one. Absolutely. Now, what would have been on the charts this week? Well, the charts was a slow transition to rock and roll. 
So I went. I, I decided to go with the singles chart this week. So the top five singles chart in America. Number five was Four Aces with Love is a Many Splendor Thing. Not really rock and roll. No. Nope. Number four is a song that we've talked about an awful lot, Tony. Bill Haley and his Comets with Rock Around the Clock. Yep. We um, talked about that last week, actually. Yeah. You know what's funny? I was watching um, TV yesterday. And I, an old episode of Happy Days came on, and I totally forgot that that was the theme song for the first season of Happy Days. And oh, you know, that's right. That's right. Remember the jukebox, the record comes on? Yeah. Anyways, yeah. The Fontaine sisters, where are they now? Probably passed away. Um, number three with 17. Number two, here's a guy that I love too, and I think we've talked about him. I love Fats Domino. Oh, me too. New Orleans. Ain't that a shame? That is one of my all-time favorite songs. That is such a great track. It's and the way he does it, you know the the the, the do 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 do. Yeah, I love. Uh, and number one is the ever popular Mitch Miller. <laughs> <laughs> Sing along with Mitch, Yellow Rose of Texas. Now I have a I have a connection to Mitch Miller. Can I share that? Sure. So, you know I'm a you know clarinet player, saxophone player, etc. Right. But uh, my clarinet professor in uh, university, early on in his career, actually toured with uh, Mitch Miller's band. So, are you serious? Yeah, yeah. So, okay, that's pretty cool. It is very cool. So that's pretty cool. There's that six degrees of separation, right? Uh, but, uh, that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. And, and just because you love the song so much, I want to tell you that the number one song on jukeboxes, because they used to actually chart jukebox plays. Number one was Ain't That a Shame. Well, I'm not surprised by that at all. Now, where are we heading next? Let's take a look here. We're going to head out to the Joshua Tree in California. Oh, this is a great story. Yes. Uh, let's yeah, do it. It's a very bizarre story. <laughs> this is weird. Well, you know what? Um, this You can't make this stuff up, folks. So, uh, yeah, why don't you punch it in and we'll head there right now. There we go. Well, Aaron, I think this is a first, but uh, the Wayback Music Machine has landed in the desert. Uh, what's going on? Well, first of all, I'm really glad you topped up the water because it's mighty hot out here. It is really hot. <laughs> so we're at, I don't even know why we're here. Well, we're here because 26-year-old Graham Parsons, who had been in the, bur the birds from 1968 to 69, and the Flying Burrito Brothers from 69 to 70, they went solo. He, he passed away um, under mysterious circumstances in Joshua Tree, California. Um, and his death was attributed to heart failure, but later was officially announced as a drug overdose. Tony, I, I really want to give you the next part of the story. <laughs> well, because like I said uh, in the last segment, like you cannot make this stuff up. So there's a... I don't know where to begin, Aaron. I really don't. <laughs> so basically, yeah, Graham Parsons dies, and he wants his body, he wants to be buried in Joshua Tree National Park in California. His family, however, wants the body returned to them. So a couple of his friends, his manager, uh, Phil Kaufman, and a guy named Michael Martin, who was a former roadie of the birds, they manage and this is a story like only in rock and roll they decide that they're going to impersonate funeral employees and martin actually had get this he actually had a, a hearse like his family had a hearse 
So that makes it even more bizarre. But they decide that they're going to be funeral employees and they drive to the airport in Los Angeles at LAX and they convince the uh, the guard, I guess it was, they convince the guard that they are there on the family's instructions to grab the body and the guard releases them. And it gets stranger than that, though. There was a police officer parked there and the police officer helped load the casket into the hearse and they take off and they bring this body to uh, Joshua Tree National Park and they are pouring gasoline on it and uh, lighting it on fire and it starts to rain and the and of course people are seeing the smoke and people are coming to check it out and so they have to make a getaway and so they take off but it's and so people see the casket there and now um it's a it's become a little monument where graham uh, parsons casket is and and uh, people still know where it is but isn't that the most unusual thing so phil kaufman and michael martin i mean just talk about hootspot right like <laughs> I, I don't think there's another word that fits that you know yeah um and actually i'm going to los angeles to visit our daughter in october and we're staying near where his i'm a big graham parsons fan I'm, you know, so she made some like a pilgrimage. My daughter's been there several times, and uh, she says there's tons of people always there to pay. You know, even in 2021, there's people still paying their respects to Grand Parsons, right? But I don't know, man. <laughs> Dressing up like funeral parlor—it's—it's it's the most unreal story, and, and but it's such a rock and roll story, isn't it? And uh, he, you know, he was. Now the other part was Kaufman. Uh, his house was being used to film a movie. And he goes back home and, it, you know, they're all chatting about the story and, and the police came there and, and uh, arrested him there. But it is it is wild. And they they got charged, but they basically didn't face a real stiff sentence or anything like that. As far as I know, they got off almost scot-free. A stiff sentence? Like, like a stiff? <laughs> Very good. Very good, Tony. That, that was unintentional, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, this is one of those legendary stories, and I'm sure, uh, judging by what I've read about Kaufman, you know, that he, I'm sure he embellished parts of it. I think he he was a little bit liberal with facts, but it is it is a great story. Well, you know, I mean, it is a great story, and it, it's it it couldn't be for anyone other than Graham Parsons, who was born, by the way, with the remarkably unrock and roll name. Ingram Cecil Connor III. Oh my goodness. Um, who, who described his music as cosmic American music, which I think is a really good term, isn't it? Yeah, that, that would be uh, an interesting description for sure. <laughs> so I think if anyone's going to have their coffin lit on fire <laughs> by your manager and roadie, it's got to be <laughs> Graham Parsons. It's not going to be Pat Boone. Um, although, no, just kidding. Um, it's not going to be Pat Boone. But. Um, as I said, I'm a big fan. I mean, I, I, I love the Flying Burrito Brothers. I grew up with this because my brother, I have four brothers, everyone. Um, and my second eldest brother, he loved the Flying Burrito Brothers. And I used to be, I used to spend one weekend a month with him. And that's all I'd hear for the entire weekend was Flying Burrito Brothers. And um, the song that always sticks out of my head is Sin City, which I just think is a, a work of art. So. Yeah, oh, Sin City is a great song. Isn't it a great song? I love that song. So, and let's not forget the stuff he did with Emmylou Harris, who I love, by the way. Mm-hmm, me too. Um, he kind of, I, I don't know that there would be an Eagles without a Graham Parsons, especially with the Sweetheart of the Rodeo album by the Birds. 
which really was like a cross between rock and country and it 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 i think he um i think he influenced people like the birds and um sorry not the birds the eagles who are birds i guess uh, <laughs> got out of that one there, nice, the eagles nice job. and um poco people like that well absolutely and uh he's pretty hard to pin a style down on him for sure now september night uh, what was on the charts here well i did the top five singles again because i thought it was an interesting i just i love these singles charts number five was grand funk now sometimes they were grand funk railroad sometimes they were just grand funk here they were just grand funk we're an american band oh great song Remember, yeah it's classic right mm-hmm. have you ever heard nash the slash do that no i haven't oh, i'll send you a link it's quite good number four is paul simon with the dixie hummingbirds and love me like a rock loves me like a rock i guess it's an s right number three dawn featuring tony orlando has anybody seen my sweet gypsy rose well, there you go another italian connection Hey, you know what? I listen to him every Saturday night on the radio now. Oh, do you? Yeah, he's on um, a station in New York City. It's quite good. Uh, number two is Marvin Gaye, Let's Get It On. That would explain why so many babies were uh, born about nine months later. Okay. <laughs> well, between Marvin Gaye and Barry White, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and number one, the uh, just one of the weirdest songs, in my opinion, ever to make number one, Delta Dawn by Helen Reddy. Yeah, I didn't realize that charted at number one. That's incredible. I didn't either, Tony. Like, I just thought, great. I mean, it's a great song and all, but I just, I thought, number one, really? But yeah. We used to sing that in choir at school. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've got one more stop to make today. We're going to go to... Uh, September 18th, 1983, and we're going to be talking about a band that uh, neither one of us are big fans of, but you can't deny that uh, these guys certainly knew how to mark the, uh, to uh, market themselves. Well, speaking of which, you can actually go on their website and buy an official coffin with their, you know, which doubles as a, a cooler for you if you want to store your beer. But anyways. Yeah, well, yeah I was on their website today. It's pretty interesting, actually. <laughs> <laughs> all right i should plug in for what year 83 right 83 september 18th here we go all right here we go so we're in new york it's 1983 it's september september 18th to be exact and a band is going to do something they had never done in their career kiss is going to appear without their makeup for the first time on MTV promoting the album with the lovely title Lick It Up. Yeah. I can't say that. I think I, every time I hear that title, I think of Spinal Tap. Yeah, exactly. Love Glove. And uh, <laughs> I mean, this group had been wearing makeup since 73. And do you remember, Tony? It was like everyone tried to get a photo of a member of Kiss without makeup. Oh, yeah, it was a big deal. Like, we, even as kids, we were thinking about that. Like, what do they look like without their makeup? And Yeah, yeah. And, well, now uh, we know. Well, and you know, I was watching, as we were researching uh, this episode, I, I was watching a bunch of their videos from that period where they went makeup-free, right? And it's some of them look awkward. Like, Gene Simmons, to me, looks awkward a little bit without all the makeup on you know where he became that character because he was always the most flamboyant of the four 
you know, doing the spitting blood and, and having his tongue altered and all that stuff. and Breathing fire. Yeah, yeah. But uh, he looked a little awkward. It was... They're not my favorite band. I, I think that's no big secret. And, uh, you know, I found that period after they went uh, without makeup. I mean, their music's very, very formula for sure. But they, they certainly knew how to crank out hits because they, they never really went away. Like that band had, a, had longevity. Well, I don't know if you've seen it. There's a really good documentary that just came out called Kistory. And I'm, I'm not a fan of their music. I don't own any of their records. Yeah, me neither. Great documentary, though. And it's funny you say that about the awkwardness because Simmons talks about that. It's, it, see, you picked up on that. And he was, you know, with the makeup on. I mean, we're talking about Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley, two kids who, two Jewish kids who didn't drink, had never, Simmons says, I've never had a drink, never did a drug. They were very clean. They were really in it for the music and models, but um, they, you know they, they they were very clean living people, and they and they were trying to compete with the hair bands of the '80s, you know the Bon Jovis and the mm-hmm. Cinderellas, and the and they didn't feel comfortable because that wasn't their thing. Their thing was the makeup, the horror film, the glam rock. So you, you could see the uncomfortableness with Gene Simmons because he's probably thinking, "I feel naked without that makeup on." You know? Oh, that's right, and and. Um... You know, and he played it up in interviews because I remember uh, the Mike Douglas interview where, you know, Mike Douglas was asking him about his character and he said, I'm evil incarnate, right? Which was just, he was just playing around. But uh, (laughs) I mean, it just added to that legend that was building around him. One of the funniest jokes ever was on um, Paul Lynn had a Halloween special. Oh, yeah. And he had had Kiss on and he's interviewing them and he says to Kiss, what happened? Did you guys get into a fight and your mother said kiss and make up? <laughs> <laughs> I tried to imitate Paul Lynn. I'm not doing a good job. But that was just a great line. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But uh, yeah, they've, they've managed. They were masters of promotion, though, you know, because if, if you actually just sit back and listen to the music, it's okay. And as a band... They're okay, in my opinion, but they're not outstanding. You know, like they're not outstanding musicians. And they, but they admit to it as much. They they admit to that. I mean, they 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 knew they weren't going to make it on on talent. They knew they weren't going to be the next Zeppelin or the next Who or the next Beatles. Or, although they love the Beatles, yeah, they knew that they 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 knew their limitations, and and they did a concept album. And when you see the interview, it's very funny because they're going. I don't know. We tried to do a concept album. We're not the Beatles. We're not Pink Floyd. This was so bad. And they're admitting to it on TV. Like, that's a horrible album, man. Yeah, it was. But you're right. They weren't great. I mean, I like Beth and I like um, I Was Made for Loving You and, and their hits, right? Yeah, but um, and and uh, how long were they makeup free? It was, it was quite a while, too, wasn't it? About 10 well, years. They, yeah, about yeah, a few years. But then they went back to the makeup thing because, again, they realized that, um, you know, they they really needed the makeup on. Yeah. And it just, it, it, it was better. But we were talking before, and they've only had one album go number one, and that was only in Australia. Yeah, I, I would have sworn that Kiss must have had a number one album. Isn't that interesting? And their only number one album came in the 90s, an album called Psycho Circus. And they never had a number one single. Uh, their highest charting single was Beth, which peaked at number seven in 76. Wow. And the Forever remix in 1990. They, they sold 100 million records, 
yeah. but they just never made it to that pinnacle spot. Well, because I remember as a kid, you know, particularly, like Kiss was everywhere, right? And and all the mm. merchandise and the comic books. And I remember reading the comic books, and you know, half the half the kids at school had Kiss lunchboxes, and I mean, they they were the the masters of of promoting themselves. Everyone. After this podcast, go on to kiss.com and just look at how they've marketed themselves. Yeah. It's, I, I, it's incredible. Yeah, it is uh, amazing. And they're still doing it. Now, 83, though, September 83, what was on the charts here? I, I, I just want to say that my wife, Andrea, should be grateful I don't collect Kiss. I collect <laughs> Beatles. That's right. <laughs> be taking out another mortgage on the house if you did. <laughs> I'd, be on the, I'd be on the fifth mortgage. Um <laughs> But the Beatles were never the, the best marketers. They're better now, but they were never great. Um, so the 1983, the top five singles, I'm going to say for the first time, I love every single one of these. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. I do. I really do. Number five is Eurythmics. Uh, Sweet Dreams Are Made of This. Yeah, fantastic song. Number four, okay, it's over the top. It's it's totally dramatic, but I love Bonnie Tyler, Total Eclipse of the Heart. Oh, yeah, that's uh, that's 80s all the way for sure. Oh, yeah. I don't know what to do. I'm always in the dark. Um, <laughs> number three, Montreal's own Men Without Hats in the Safety Dance. And have you heard their new version of it called I No have, Friends of Mine? I have not. It's really slow and it's fantastic. It's it's really slow. Oh, so, gosh. I'm going to have to look that up. Yeah, it's well worth looking up. Number two is a favorite of yours and the person we're going to see next year, Billy Joel. Tell her about it. Yeah, what a great song. And uh, he wrote that whole album, you know, as a, as a tribute to that era in music. And uh, it's fantastic. And number one, whenever people come and look at my collection, they're always amazed to see this album in it. It's from the album Flashdance. Yeah. It's Maniac. By M- I like the music from the movie. What can I say? Now, you know, I've never seen that movie, but I know the... I haven't either. I, I just like I the know music. the soundtrack well, but yeah. Michael Cimbello, another Italian. Look yeah. at you, you're representing Italy, man. There you go. But that got a lot of airplay, didn't it, boy? Oh, too much. I mean, I got to the point of overkill. I liked uh, the song Flashdance better, but I like Michael Cimbello, too. Well, what a great... Uh, this was a real mixed bag uh, for a road trip. <laughs> a mixed bag? <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to say we're all over the road, but, you know, it's, you're, you're right. <laughs> yeah, touche. Nice one. Well, shall we head back to the present and we'll uh, take a look at what the Beatles were up to? I think that's a grand idea, so let me just plug it in. Oh, look at that. I can't find my computer. Here we go. I should find a, a proper computer sound effect for us, but it is kind of fun watching you uh, well, we tap used, your fingers we used to say, You used to do the, the uh, plug it in the radio, you know? But Yeah, we should go back to that as well. I wonder if you could get a sound effect where you got the, you know when, you, know when you change dials the old days? Oh, I'm going to look for that. You know what? That, that do, might do be you know our, what I mean? That might be our punching in the date sound effect going forward, sure. Yeah. That might be fun. All right. Well, let's do it. Let's go back to the present. Here we go. Well, always nice to get back to the present after we've been traveling. And uh, I didn't really like the heat in the uh, desert, I I have to say. So get out of the kitchen. (laughs) Nice. So uh, let's take, (laughs) I guess we should uh, take a look at what the Beatles were up to because they, a whole lot went on and um, too much. Well, let me cue up uh, Rick's stinger here and we'll be right back. (laughs) 
All right. Uh, so many things that the Beatles were up to this week. It, you know, not only was there a lot going on in rock history, but the Beatles were very, very busy this week in uh, history as well. But we picked a, a really cool one. And this actually is pre-Beatles, isn't it? Pre and post. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is an interesting one. This is This happened in September the 15th, 1994. Someone found a reel-to-reel tape of the quarrymen playing at St. Peter's Parish Church Garden Party in Liverpool in July 57. Now, what makes that date really special, Tony, is us today, John met Paul. Yeah. Well, isn't that... And someone had a tape of it. And they sold it at Sotheby's um, for $125,000. I stopped bidding at about (laughs) (laughs) $124,000. But what a find that is. Oh, my gosh. I remember they played a little bit of it on the CBC, just a wee bit to get us all... To hear a young John Lennon singing Come Go With Me is fantastic. Oh, amazing. And uh, I, I just, you know, speechless over that one. Like, that's that's such an incredible find. And uh, so I, I remember, uh, go ahead, sorry. Oh, no. Do you, who bought it? Do you know? I don't know. But someone compared it to finding this, you know, Leonardo da Vinci's sketchbook, you know? Yeah, amazing. So what a great find. And uh, that was back in his quarrymen days. And that meeting between Paul and John. And there's also the, you know, some of the photographs from that day, right? And they look so young. It's great. I, I you know, there's that one photo and they're on the back because they performed on the back of a truck at Flatbed. And John's got that checkered shirt right from the 50s, you know? And, and you know, there's a, there's a base with a wash tub and a washboard. I just love that photo too. I think it's, it's, a, it's an iconic photo, an iconic moment. So there you go, folks. That was our six degrees of Beatlemania moment. And Aaron, uh, really love the new mic that you're using. And uh, well, thanks to you. <laughs> and uh, really great chat today. This was uh, this was so much fun. I agree. And and uh, we we hopefully we'll do another one on Sunday where we do our show for Spotify because uh, we got to get back in the seat for that one too. Well, absolutely. And if you haven't listened to that yet, folks, uh, Aaron and I do a. Spotify only radio show called Before My Time, and it is a celebration of all things old school. And our premise is is that we're talking about music that came from before our album buying ages, you know. So we're, we're talking about music from early seventies and back, and uh, we've covered everything from jazz to blues uh, to rock Disney. and roll. And we've covered Disney. That's right. We just did an episode on the Horn Rock period. Absolutely fascinating. So look for Before My Time on Spotify. But uh, great road trip, Aaron. I think it's time that I drop you off here and uh, really had a good time this week. I did too. Thank you for the for the lift. Oh, all right. And we'll talk to you soon. Music for today's episode of the Wayback Music Machine podcast was written by Rick Denis. The show notes, chart selection, and Spotify playlist were created by Aaron Badgley. And the artwork, recording, editing, and sound production was done by Tony Stewart. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to tell a friend or two. And don't forget to click follow or subscribe on your favorite podcast player to get the latest episodes automatically. And we'd love it if you would leave us a review. You can also engage with the show by going on our website and leaving us a voicemail. We may even play your voicemail on an upcoming episode. Thanks for taking this road trip with us, and we'll see you next time on the Wayback Music Machine Podcast. Hey! 
turn the radio up. I love this song. The Wayback Music Machine podcast is a Stewie Tunes production. Welcome to America, the land of junk sleep, where it's bedtime, but you're double booked. Here, there's always one more deadline to meet, episode to watch, or meme to share. The world may not want you to sleep, but we do. Only the sleep experts at Mattress Firm can help you find the right bed at the right price. Unjunk your sleep. In-store or online at mattressfirm.com today.